0: If we ever get to dog-level intelligence, it's quite likely we will very quickly see a massive increase. increase. This is so where science, science fiction, fiction doesn't really serve as well. Sometimes much of science-, science fiction around artificial general intelligence seems to suggest that we have kind of human-level um, human intelligence, intelligence in humanoid form, form when actually it's much more, more likely uh, that there will be a vastly superior intellect in a distributed form, rather than the robot that you see, for example, in the Isaac Asgard stories.
1: Thank you for joining The Change I Am Possible, which is India's first Future Tech meets Sustainability podcast. And today I'm delighted and honored to have with me Mr. Simon Chesterman, who is the Dean and Provost, Chair Professor of the National University of Singapore, Faculty of Law, and Senior Director of AI Governance at AI Singapore. He's also the editor of the Asian Journal of International Law and Co-President of the Law School's Global League, He was global professor and director of the New York University School of Law, Singapore program, a senior associate at the International Peace Academy and director of UN relations at the International Crisis Group in New York. Simon is also an author, editor of 21 books, including the recently released We the Robots, Regulating Artificial Intelligence and the Limits of the Law. So it's a pleasure and honor to have you on the show. Really appreciate you taking time being part of the podcast. So
0: before,
1: let's start with, you know, giving context to the audience on what is artificial intelligence and what is big data?
0: Yeah. So, I mean, artificial intelligence is a term that gets thrown around a lot uh, and often what it really means is uh, sophisticated computing. Uh, I think it's probably easiest to explain in kind of two directions. One is sort of a comparison with human intelligence and then secondly, what people are doing in practice. The comparison with human intelligence is it's, its a shorthand way of saying that AI is a machine that can do things cognitively, that is with a kind of brain, a bit like what a human can do. Uh, and that either means narrow intelligence, so we use our brain to play chess, very good chess playing computers, in fact they're better than humans, uh, or there's narrow, there's general intelligence, which is the idea that a computer would be able to think and perhaps even be conscious where the way a human is. So we, we draw that analogy but probably it's simplest uh, for your audience to understand it as uh, through the lens of one subset of artificial intelligence, which is machine learning. Meaning that AI refers to, among other things, uh, computers that can learn themselves, that can improve themselves, uh, and as a result, are able to do all sorts of things that we used to have to either rely on humans to do, or at least we couldn't rely on machines to do. Um, So that's intelligence and then big data uh, is just the reality of the modern world, that we are all uh, producers and consumers of vast amounts of data. Uh, the reason why Google's search algorithm is so good is because billions upon billions of searches have gone into it and refined that. Uh, and the reason why all sorts of things on the internet are free is because uh, companies vacuum up our data in order to improve their advertising algorithms, which earns them money in different ways. Yeah, so you're right, These are, these are key terms often thrown around. Uh, but somewhat imprecisely.
1: Thank you for explaining explaining it so brilliantly. We are at the narrow uh, intelligence space at this point in time. But yes, there are a lot of people who are working on artificial intelligence, artificial general intelligence. And the speculation is that maybe in the next possibly 40 years or maybe this century itself, we could have uh, machines that could have uh, human level intelligence or beyond. And and, and that that itself sounds so fascinating, yet at the same time, it's it, it, it's very scary. For human beings, I mean, we've got, uh, the way we function is we've got uh, around 70 billion neurons and 80 trillion synapses and that's that to it. We are neuroplastic to some extent, but after a certain age, there's not much we can improve on, you know, our brain. But computers, you can Keep on iterating, adding CPUs, GPUs, TPUs, and keep it keeps on improving. And machine learning is something where the machine imp- learns by themselves. So it's it's an exciting space that we, we are getting into, but it's also scary. Uh, we we, yeah, we we'll no, talk I think about right.
0: but one one of the one of the problems with the way in which you talk about artificial general intelligence is there's an assumption that we're sort of gradually progressing up and eventually we'll get to dog level intelligence and then average human intelligence and then maybe Albert Einstein. The problem is, and I think this is implicit in what you're saying, if we ever get to dog level intelligence, uh, it's quite likely we will very quickly see a massive increase. Uh, And so this is where science fiction doesn't really serve us well. Much of science fiction around artificial general intelligence seems to suggest that we'll have kind of human level intelligence in humanoid form, when actually it's much more likely uh, there would be a, a a vastly superior intellect in a distributed form uh, rather than the robot uh that uh, you see for example in the Isaac Asimov
1: stories when when you said that there's it could be like vast in intelligence in distributed form what could that mean is, is something that we we are at this point in time i don't think we have the bandwidth to fathom where this, this is going to go so it, it's so it's imperative that world leaders and the top researchers should get together and be cautious in building this because it, there is constant research going on in AI field. And and because of internet, which, which has democratized knowledge, it's no longer like only America or, or, or the the first world nation who are researching on AI. There is research happening in India, there's research happening in China, Singapore, UK, Canada. There are governments who are working on AI, but then there are these startups who are working on, and it could also go into the fringe element. So we don't really know where it could go. So would you describe your role at the university? Yeah, so
0: I've got two roles. One is, one is I'm Dean of the Law School, that means I'm um, sort of managing the academic side of things, I'm running a law school with about 1,200 students, about 70 faculty members and so on, um, but my other job is Senior Director as, of AI Governance at AI Singapore, uh, and in that what we're really trying to do is bring the humanities and social sciences to the table, um, because thus far artificial intelligence really has been dominated by technologists, computer scientists, to some extent, engineers. For obvious reasons, Uh, this is this is a tech-heavy enterprise, uh, and uh, and so many of the advances in machine learning, computer vision, uh, are on the technical side. Uh, And I think what people started to realize uh, in the last, really, it's only in the last five or so years, uh, is that you need a broader conversation. Exactly what you were saying, earlier. You need. People to realise that this is not just a technical problem to fix, this is transforming our society. And I think that realisation came about in particular around 2016 uh, with the election of Donald Trump, with the revelations about Cambridge Analytica and the realisation that um, the uh, abuse, as some people saw it, of data and of these technological tools at our disposal, they weren't just risking Um, identity theft, they weren't just risking an autonomous vehicle crashing, they were changing world history. And so what I'm trying to do now is, uh, is, as you said also, broaden the conversation. So really what we're trying to encourage is two types of uh, questions that haven't always been asked. The first one partly, the second not so much. The first one is, should we trust AI? Should we rely on it? uh, In what circumstances, with what safeguards? Uh, and so there has been some movement there, looking at ethical principles. Various companies have adopted guidelines, frameworks. The European Union earlier this year introduced draft legislation. So that that's part of the conversation. Should we trust AI? But the second conversation is, I think, equally interesting, which is: Will we, in fact, trust AI? What are the um, qualities of human-machine interactions that will make it? more likely that people will, for example, accept uh, self-driving buses, that they will use artificial intelligence in medicine, uh, that they will use financial products, they will allow their governments uh, in some circumstances to rely on AI, when uh, a different kind of um, description of AI uh, is that AI really is machines doing things faster, more autonomously and more opaquely than ever before. Uh, and so if we can't understand, for example, how a decision is made, in what circumstances should we trust that decision? Now, I'll put it to you, sometimes, sometimes we should. Sometimes we don't really care why something works. It's not necessary for me to understand exactly how a jumbo jet flies in order to get on one. And similarly, if autonomous vehicles are safe, I don't have to understand all the science in order to get in one. But there are other areas where we really do care not just about the decision but how it's made who is making it Uh, and the extreme there is perhaps lethal autonomous weapons but i think most of us viscerally feel that there should be a a real pause before we delegate to a machine the ability to choose in the way a soldier does in the heat of battle between killing person a or person b Uh, and so in those kind of questions those kind of areas we really do need to think about should we trust AI, will we trust AI, and what are the circumstances that will shape those decisions, which will be increasingly common, I think, in the very near future.
1: It was always like a wait and watch approach when it came to digitization because it's it was always fancy to talk about digitization and how it could you know help businesses and things like that but everybody is comfortable with you know with the way businesses pro has always functioned traditionally and nobody really bothered about uh digitization but covid has kind of accelerated all digital technologies and bought the lens on uh, what digital technology could do and automation can do so all industries have adopted automation what that is going to do, uh, what that has done is that the industries have realized that what maybe 50 people, 50 humans were, were doing. Here, there is maybe just a one, one machine which is doing for what 50 u- humans were doing. It is doing much faster, doesn't take salary, doesn't take uh, breaks, there's no holidays, there's no provident fund, so on and so forth. So, so, there's so many benefits. So, automation is a big subject, I think, which we need to talk about because we have been somehow thrusted into that world. And if we do not have a conversation on what is coming, then there's going to be a much bigger disruption than, than COVID. Uh, since we are at with, with, with the topic of uh, the National University of Singapore Faculty of Law, you mentioned that there's 1,200 students over there. Uh, these are law students. Now, there are already AI lawyers. There, there, there was this program, Alpha Law, I believe, which beat... Uh, uh, a, a lawyer, I think this, this was in 2019. There, there are so many of these websites which give these services, you know, for a lawyer service and stuff like that. Where do you think the the future of uh, lawyers and, and judges are, are? Are their jobs endangered because of this technology?
0: I, I, I'll come to lawyers in a moment, but what, what's fascinating about AI is that it turns oh. out that things that, the, the, the group that is most at risk is the group in the middle, if you like, of the, the socioeconomic band. Because manual labor, hand eye coordination, things that took humans tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of years through evolution to develop, that's actually quite hard for a machine to develop, hand eye coordination. So, fine motor skills, uh, even driving is proving harder than people thought. Um, really high end creative skills are also hard. Uh, for machines to do at the moment, although we're clearly going that direction. The easiest thing is the bunch in the middle. So the sort of uh, cognitive skills that are learned at a high school or maybe an undergraduate degree, uh, that's much easier for a machine to learn. So things like accounting, radiology, um, that sort of thing is, is much easier for a machine to learn. And, and I, I do worry about sort of industries like that, which have relied on people doing, if you like, sort of not especially complex, but cognitive activities that are broadly repetitive. That's ripe for automation. And maybe there's an argument that humans shouldn't be wasting their time doing that anyway. I mean, if someone's doing the same boring cognitive task over and over again, the machine can do it instead. Maybe that's better for them, provided they can still earn a living. On to lawyers. So lawyers, uh, lawyers are notoriously good at defending their turf. Uh, I mean, they're people who argue for a living. Uh, they tend to be reasonably well paid, uh, and so understandably, they want to protect themselves. But you're right that this industry has been disrupted. What is fascinating, and you, you touch on this with Alpha Lawyer, that probably the earliest example was uh, Do Not Pay, uh, essentially a chatbot, not really AI, just a systematic uh, listserv program, uh, a rules based um, program. Um, and what that's doing is the kind of massification of law, enabling uh, one programmer to provide very, very basic legal service, but to a huge number of people simultaneously. Uh, and that is a real challenge for law um, partly because law in most jurisdictions is a regulated profession you have to have a practicing certificate to be a lawyer and what this is showing is that that idea of being a lawyer actually what a lawyer does is not always clear a lot of what a lawyer does is this kind of low-end repetitive work making sure you fill in the form correctly you go to the right government department much of that will be automated but the more sophisticated uh, legal thinking Uh, is going to be a lot harder to automate. So I think that the high-end lawyers uh, will remain important. Judges will remain important. But you're absolutely right that law is not immune from this. Uh, But it's especially the repetitive, low-end cognitive things that will go first.
1: Sticking to the the same topic, you know, these good lawyers and judges have learnt the art to twist truth into lies and criminals into politicians. Right, and there, 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 are there are so many biases we humans have, racism, just conditions so on so so, and the list goes on. You think that someday maybe like a, a data-driven judge lawyer would make more sense in our ecosystem? I know it's it's a little too far away, but if we realize the importance of a system which doesn't have a human bias would that be more uh, appealing to the 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 common man who's looking for justice rather than some lawyer who who can i'm not trying to bring down the profession but then there is a, a, a you know economics play a huge role in who who wins and who loses
0: Yes, it's a great question. Now, I'll set aside corruption. So if there's corruption, clearly that that should be prosecuted, the judge or the lawyer should be arrested. What you're referring to is a a more nuanced and more interesting question, which is the unconscious biases that we have. Uh, And here I would say you're right and you're wrong. So you're right in that one of the great benefits of artificial intelligence is that if you ask it, are you biased? it will give you a truthful answer. So for example, uh, Amazon uh, delegated its uh, resume screening uh, to an algorithm. And so the algorithm, the machine learning system looked at 10 years of job applications and then concluded, okay, you don't want to hire women. So based on 10 years of evidence, you clearly don't want to hire women. And so this was actually quite useful in, in revealing that, that prejudice. Uh, and so you're right, AI, AI can make decisions Uh, and arguably be more transparent about bias, and you can correct for bias in a way that is very hard with a human. Because no human, even if they're subconsciously making biased decisions because they're racist or they're discriminating against women or for other reasons, uh, it's highly unlikely that someone will say, yeah, I'm racist. Um, But you're wrong in respect of law because the problem is actually if you look at the way in which Uh, machine learning works is essentially a sophisticated extension of regression. regression. So what that means is machine learning, when we're talking about, for example, the the type of system that makes a decision uh, in uh, categorization, so guilty or not guilty, uh, a machine will do this on the basis of looking backwards. So you feed in all the data, how would a right thinking court make a decision based on all these sort of data points? And the problem is that's only part of what the law is. Uh, If law was like predicting the weather, so based on past situations with the molecules in this area and the high pressure system here, we expect it's going to rain. You can refine that with a machine learning model and you'll get ever better predictions of the weather. But law is not predicting the weather. Uh, Law is an ongoing argument about how society should be organised. And laws are not stable. I mean, if if the law was stable, if the law was the same, I'd be out of a job because you can teach what the law is and then or write about what the law is and then that's the end of the matter. But because law is always changing and it should always change. So unless you are willing to also transfer political power to the machines and say, okay, don't just tell us what the law is, govern us into the future and we'll give up political power as well, uh, then I'd be very wary about giving this sort of power
1: Earlier, you mentioned that the the two most important questions that you you are caught up with is should we trust AI and will we trust AI? Do you think that in the future, machines and humans might coexist?
0: Uh, The the social interaction with machines, the the way in which we conceptualize that relationship uh, is not always rational. So, for example, the study that I remember is quite a—it's a, it's an evocative one. You have three groups of people, uh, and they're each told to build a little toy robot. So, the first group is told, build the robot, and then is told, okay, now destroy it with a hammer. So, they build and then destroy it. Second group is told, okay, build the robot, uh, give it a name, uh, and now destroy it with a the hammer. They hesitate, and then they destroy it. The third group is told, right, build the robot, give it a name, give it a backstory, play with it for half an hour. And then someone comes in and tells them to destroy it with a hammer. They say, you monster, how dare you? Uh, And so there are all sorts of examples like this that the mere fact of uh, whether a robot has a face, um, if it has a name, so uh, robots that are distributing pharmaceuticals in a nursing home, the mere fact of putting a a sticker with a name on it uh, will encourage people uh, to to, uh, interact with it more more happily. They'll have positive uh, interactions. Uh, But uh, the the reality is we are going to have to interact with technology. And in fact, we already do interact with technology. I mean, I assume you like me are old enough to have uh, lived in a day and age when you had to remember telephone numbers. Uh, Now I can remember maybe five or six telephone numbers because the rest I know are all in my phone. Uh, Whenever someone asks you a question, maybe you rack your brains or maybe you Google for the answer. Uh, So we already use mobile telephones are probably the clearest example, as a kind of extension of our brain. Uh, And again, for the most part, that's a great thing. It means we've got the world's information in our pocket. Uh, And as a university professor, I think that's actually a huge benefit uh, because decades ago, there was this, I think very silly conception of of an education as being, I'm a professor, so I know things. You come to my university, pay me, and I'll tell you those things. Now, no one would think that's the purpose of university. My job now is to, is to cultivate a conversation with people who have access to all the same information as me and try and make that conversation an interesting one. Uh, so yeah, a long way of saying, I think we already do coexist with technology, uh, but as that technology becomes ever more sophisticated, I do think it's important that we retain an idea of what it's intended to do and what our role is uh, and in particular, that we avoid situations where it, it the technology is either going to be uncontrollable or uncontainable. And that, if you like, is the peril of artificial general intelligence. Uh, and I think it was uh, Turing, among others, who said that uh, if we ever do succeed in uh, creating this greatest ever invention of humanity, it could be our greatest invention and it could be our last.
1: There is a growing trajectory where there's more and more companies are offloading their cognitive data onto machines because it, it's easier there's so much data and you know the data is being processed by machines they're inferring all the information into something which is extremely valuable for the company so what in the far uh, long run what would be the pros and cons of offloading or human data onto uh, onto computers
0: so here, I mean, we had actually we had the same debates 2000 years ago. So, um, Socrates uh, famously uh, was very wary of the written word. He was concerned that if people wrote things down, then knowledge would be static and people wouldn't think anymore. Uh, of course, the only reason we know what Socrates said is because Plato wrote it down and we can read about it now. Uh, and so I think the, the expansion of human memory, uh, the, the, the access to information, the ability not only to consume information, but also to publish it to the world, to interact as you and I are on different in different parts of the planet, um, that's clearly beneficial. Uh, I, I think as we move more of our lives online, as we move into this kind of metaverse, if you like, um, the concern is that you, you lose some of what it is to be human uh, because humans are innately social creatures. This is why for many people, the COVID pandemic has been so distressing because our uh, natural inclination is to bond with each other, to interact with each other. Uh, and the way in which we fight this virus is doing the opposite of that. Uh, and so I think, insofar as we can use technology to expand our memories, expand our horizons, that's an excellent thing. But if it means we're giving up on the kind of real world interactions, then, then that would um, take away some of what it is to be a human.
1: Right. Yeah. So, yeah. Talking about that because I've been invested in virtual reality, and yes, there, there's this argument that we are social creatures and we need to, and yes, that that stands true. But on the other side is is that you know everybody has realized the benefit of remote work, remote healthcare, and remote education. That's thanks to COVID, and today we we using a flat medium. Uh, Zoom or or computers or uh, mobiles as an interface to communicate with each other. But eventually with technology such as virtual reality, augmented reality, mixed reality, we we will have virtual avatars of ourselves and we will be able to simulate the physical world much better. And instead of this 2D medium, which we are trapped by, we will break into the 3D medium and interactions will be more like physical. And with virtual reality growing, it would not be wrong to say that maybe in around 40 or 40, uh, maybe 40 or 50 years, we will be able to actually simulate the physical world to a certain degree where it would get difficult to distinguish between what is uh, uh, virtual and what is physical. So there is that other side, w- w- which is showing benefits. I'm not saying that, you know, we are social creatures and we, that's that's the best way that we interact. But technology, the way it's growing, we have through, through ages, we've always uh, leveraged technology and and that's yes, we need to be very careful with where it's gro- it's going because if we do not co-create it, 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 the chances are that it can go go out of our hand and create something which could be uh, an existential uh, threat for mankind. You are the senior. Now, well,
0: there are, there are two, two interesting things there that you're saying. Um, so we'll maybe come back to the existential threat, but on the the sort of virtual augmented reality. I mean, what I find fascinating in what you're saying is that um, I think you're right, that we will progress towards ever more realistic interactions. Uh, and actually, I don't have a problem with that. My, my, my main concern is not the physical interaction. It's the intellectual emotional interaction. And so if we're sort of interacting virtually with real people uh, in real time, and it's indistinguishable from reality, uh, then you're right, then that that might be that might satisfy all of the same considerations. Indeed, there's a famous thought experiment that if you if you extrapolate from how much things are improving in terms of simulated realities uh, as you intimate, eventually it seems pretty clear we will get to a point where it's impossible to distinguish reality from virtual, in which case, if you then extrapolate further over time, uh, there's a pretty real chance that this current yeah, this reality impacts innovation. innovation, and that, that's major so on. on the on the sort of existential threat, I, I do think you're right, uh, and part of my book, uh, which you of mentioned at the outset, is um, is to say a lot of the a lot of the regulatory challenges of artificial intelligence are in fact not that complicated. Uh, there's a lot of energy that goes into coming up with new ethical principles. Uh, and so on. And I think this this presents the problem as being both too hard and too easy. Uh, too hard in that you don't you don't need to reinvent this wheel, you don't need to come up with all these new ethical principles. It presents it as being too easy because with a list of 8 or 9 principles, uh, you can't then govern the machines. It's much more complicated in practice. And so what you really need to focus on in practice, that the two things that I think we do need to keep an eye on is um, a, an appropriate level of transparency. That is the ability to understand when it's important to understand how a machine is operating, which doesn't mean all the time, but in, for example, life and death decisions, public sector decisions, if the government is relying on a machine, you need to understand how and why it's making decisions. And the second area is human centricity or human control. um, That I think we need to avoid a situation in which someone is creating an AI system that is going to be uncontrollable or uncontainable. Uh, and this is this is the phenomenon of the, the idea of the superintelligence. And the problem there is that if you if you get close to creating an artificial superintelligence uh and then try to contain it or to control it, that might bring about the problem you are trying to avert. Because the act of trying to contain it or control it could lead it to think that humans are the enemy. Uh, and this is this is a great deficiency in machines that We're seeing at the moment, for example, in efforts to have autonomous vehicles, where autonomous vehicles, the the challenge of autonomous vehicles is not driving in a straight line on a road. That's not the problem. Even navigating traffic lights. The problem with autonomous vehicles on the road is interacting with other humans. uh, The way that if you and I are crossing the street, for example, we make eye contact with all these subtle things going on because of our shared evolution, our shared experiences, uh, and it is incredibly difficult to transfer that to a machine. So back to the paperclip example, the danger is if you give a machine all of this power and a clear directive, don't expect it to exercise common sense. Machines at the moment, at least, are extremely literal. Uh, and that could mean one gets out of control and does something that we don't, we don't want or we can't, um, can't cope with.
1: You said, you know, when you're building AI, you need two things, transparency and human centric. Almost all our businesses are almost like 100 plus years old, the legacy businesses and uh, capitalism the way it functions is completely opaque do you see uh, that happening do you see a transparent ai uh, ever uh, being cre- created because most of the companies at this point in time who are building ai they're the big ones you know it's google uh, microsoft and, and, and so on and so forth so do, do you see a human-centric and transparent ai ever being built
0: so the transparency question, you're right. I mean, some there are broadly three ways in which opacity arises. Some some machines are designed to be opaque. They're designed to protect confidential information. So Google protected search algorithm and so on. So that that's sort of confidential um, uh, opacity. Uh, then a second is compl- complex opacity. So I mentioned earlier flying in a jet. Um, there are all sorts of physical um, engineering problems that it's hard to understand, but there are humans who do understand those. We can we can also address. The real problem with AI is this idea of natural opacity. That as uh, machine learning systems, as neural, neural nets get ever more complex, it is literally impossible for a human to understand. Uh, and so clearly, that that has been embraced uh, in some circumstances. So AlphaGo Zero, when it beat um, Lee Sedol in in Go. Um, uh, It, made, among other things, made a move that everyone thought was crazy, no one understood why, the programmers couldn't understand why, and only in retrospect it ends up being pivotal to match. So for a chess-playing algorithm, a Go-playing algorithm, medical technology I mentioned earlier, we might not worry overly about exactly how a decision is reached, Um, but what I'm talking about is not human control and transparency in in all situations. Clearly, that's, that's impossible and indeed undesirable. AI brings all sorts of benefits, but I do think there should be certain red lines. So, transparency in life and death decisions uh, in the battlefield, transparency in how public sector goods are distributed, uh, how governments make decisions, uh, because the legitimacy of the government decision is not just—it's beca- it's not because it's the right decision; it's because it's a decision by someone who can be held accountable through the ballot box. So governments shouldn't be outsourcing their decisions to companies, nor should they be outsourcing their decisions to machines. Uh, and on human centricity, uh, it's really this idea of trying to guard against a situation where AI becomes uncontrollable, uncontainable. Uh, but, uh, but that, that is going to be a real challenge because as, as you touched on earlier, the, the barrier to entry in the AI game is quite low. Uh, and so as computers become ever more sophisticated, We've got examples already of computer viruses that got out of control. Um, Thus far, the the damage is considerable, but not catastrophic. Uh, But if you had even a a, a semi-autonomous computer virus that replicated itself, decided that it wanted to spread, decided that it wanted to take over various industries, uh, that, that could be extremely dangerous indeed
1: you you did speak about your book uh, we We the robots but would you like to talk a little bit more about the book what made you write the the book and what what is it all about
0: sure so i mean i'm my my background you, you gave me an unnecessarily generous and long introduction my background is actually public international law but really what i've always been interested in is public authority in crisis uh so i worked on What happens when a government turns on its population? To what extent can the international community go in and intervene what's called humanitarian intervention? What happens afterwards when a government is either absent in a failed state or has turned dysfunctional? To what extent can other actors come in and help? Um, I've done work on intelligence agencies. So what happens when threats to the state lead some officials to think they should break the law? So all these are challenges to public authority. Uh, And AI, I think, poses a similar challenge to public authority. Uh, How do you get the benefits, the obvious benefits of artificial intelligence, this technological revolution we're living through, uh, while minimising or mitigating avoidable harms? Uh, And essentially what I'm arguing is you need to break things into three baskets. Uh, Some harms, you just want to mitigate the risk. So again, autonomous vehicles, we, we need rules and so on to make sure they're safe. But we don't really care why they're safe, as long as they are safe. Other areas, uh, we want to preserve a degree of human involvement. Uh, So the clearest example is on the battlefield. The reason we want meaningful human control in the battlefield is not because humans will make better decisions. Uh, Most war crimes happen because a human is either tired or angry or racist or whatever. Uh, But nonetheless, uh, I don't think we should delegate decisions like that to machines. Precisely because, just at a visceral level, I think most of us agree. Not everyone, most of us agrees agree that um, the decision whether to take a life should be grappled with. It shouldn't just be a cold calculation uh, in the in the mind of a computer. And then the third area is government. That governments should not be able to outsource their decisions to machines uh, any more than they should be able to outsource them to a company. Uh, and if a government official or a judge comes up with an answer to a question when asked, why do you decide to allocate funding this way or why do you say this person's guilty? If that public official says, I don't know, the machine told me to do it, then we have gone disastrously wrong in our politics. Uh, And so that is the shameless plug of the book. That's kind of what the book is about.
1: Is it going to be launched here in India also?
0: I would love to come to India to do a formal book launch. Uh, but, uh, but travel at the moment is impossible. It is available, I know it's available through Amazon India, but I'm pretty confident that other booksellers, smaller local booksellers should be able to get access to it, with electronic versions and so on. Uh, but, uh, but I hope anyone who's interested can have a look. And if they go to, um, uh, if they just want to have a look for free, uh, my website, simonchesterman.com, uh, there's a link and you can read the whole introduction uh, on the Cambridge University website for free.
1: Thank you. Wish you the very best, and I'll definitely link uh, the website plus the link of Amazon uh, about the book. Now you're the senior director of AI governance at AI Singapore. Would you like to share, uh, you know, some of your work, your implementation over there?
0: So, um, so where we were just launched earlier this year. There's obviously been a lot of investment in artificial intelligence in Singapore. Singapore wants to position itself as a as a thought leader in this area. Uh, And so what we're doing is we're producing some research, obviously, but we're also trying to broaden the conversation. Um, And partly that's what I said earlier about bringing in the humanities and social sciences, um, but also ensuring that that Asia has more of a seat at the table. And that's why I was so pleased to to speak with you and your listeners. Uh, That I think this conversation has been dominated for the most part by companies in the US and regulators from the EU. Uh, And clearly that's not enough. Uh, There are uh, many other voices that need to be heard. So probably the biggest thing we're doing at uh, at AI Singapore uh, is is, uh, encouraging other researchers. So we've got some funding for Singapore-based researchers, but we're also playing a convening role, bringing in officials from around the world, but again, trying to ensure that Asian voices, diverse voices are heard uh, in this conversation about how we get all the benefits of these new technologies while mitigating or minimising the vulnerable harms.
1: India also has a national AI policy and there's a lot of uh, AI researchers and startups over here. Is there any plans of collaboration or anything in the near-term future?
0: So Singapore-India ties are extremely strong. We've got a large Indian population apart from anything else. Uh, my own university has ties with various Indian law schools uh, and, and, other, and other universities. Um, so, in terms of uh, formal ties, um, as I said, the AI governance pillar that I'm running is very, very new, uh, but we're keen to engage with um, technology entrepreneurs around the world, but again, in particular within our region, and, and India clearly is, uh, is a powerhouse of technology and innovation. Uh, And so I'd be very keen to look for ways to collaborate.
1: Would you like to share some of your policies or frameworks that's been implemented in Singapore and what's been the benefits?
0: So two examples. One um, is we had a review of the penal code and it was quite interesting. that Singapore explicitly said we did not want to start introducing laws that might unnecessarily constrain innovation. And I think that's one of the real dilemmas with regulating technology, uh, which is that you don't know what you don't know. Uh, this is what's called the Colling Ridge dilemma, that at an early stage of innovation, that's when you can, uh, you can impose regulation, you can, you can impose controls, but you don't know what the threat is. Whereas if you wait too long, uh, then the costs of imposing those controls goes way up. Uh, so an example of this is social media, uh, that knowing what we know now, we might have had a very different approach to personal data uh, when Facebook was launched, for example, uh, but it's very difficult to reverse all that. Uh, So that's that's one part of what we've been doing is trying not to unnecessarily constrain innovation, but we have adopted in Singapore. There is the model AI governance framework, which is in its second um, uh, second edition, Uh, and that's really trying to give guidance to regulators and companies uh, on how they should think about these issues and what use cases are available. Uh, And again, not surprisingly, perhaps two of the key things that it advocates for are transparency and human centricity. I was talking about earlier. Um, And then the other thing we've been doing in Singapore is establishing sandboxes. These are ways in which uh, probably the clearest example is the Monetary Authority of Singapore has established financial regulatory sandboxes for fintech companies so that fintech companies can try out their products uh, with a a kind of limited risk profile. So all of this is trying to obviously position Singapore at the heart of this debate, uh, but also raise the level, uh, in particular across Asia, uh, and hopefully uh, enable us to maximize the benefits while minimizing the risks.
1: How do you see AI transforming Asia, Singapore, in this decade?
0: Decade. Uh, so clearly, the world is getting is, is bringing us all the conversations like these this has been through AI, I suppose. Uh, but our embrace of technology will will, will shrink the world further. Um, I, I think what is going to be fascinating is what happens to um, probably the the biggest changes will be in health, wealth and transportation, Uh, transportation including logistics. So uh, We will see in in health uh, our access to data, the ability to predict individualised care regimes for for people, That's, that's really moving very quickly. Raising all sorts of interesting separate ethical questions, we just had a 20th anniversary of the Bioethics Committee in Singapore and AI if you're relying on AI and medicine, I mean, I talked about pharmaceuticals, but the foundation of most of modern medicine is the doctor-patient relationship and patient autonomy. But if the doctor doesn't understand the technology and the patient can't have informed consent, that's going to be very difficult, even as our medical care improves. So that's health. Uh, wealth, in terms of finance, we're already seeing a proliferation of financial products uh, that the danger is we'll make... Be extremely rich, even richer at the expense of the, of the rest of us. Uh, but I think that will be important. And then transportation, logistics, the movement of people, the movement of goods, um, we've really seen uh, accelerated through COVID, um, online shopping. Uh, and again, the, the danger there is it's enormously convenient, but it means Jeff Bezos flies into space because he's, uh, he's got all this money, he doesn't know what to do with. Uh, and so what I worry about is if we keep going in this direction, uh, of concentration of capital, of, uh, of the disenfranchisement and disemployment of large numbers of people, uh, you will see greater, ever greater concentrations of wealth uh, in a very small number of people. Uh, and It goes back to what you said earlier about what the machines can do. They can do all sorts of things uh, and they won't make mistakes, they don't take holidays, they, they, um, they, they won't steal from you, unless they're very, very clever. Uh, but the other thing they won't do is they won't pay taxes. Uh, And so I think that's actually one of the other challenges is how you tax ever greater automation uh, as uh, increasingly we move away from people selling their labour or selling their intellect on the open market to machines doing it. And you only need a small number of people to control those machines. What are the rest of the people going to do and who's going to pay the taxes to look after those who fall sick or need extra care or to pave the roads and so on?
1: right yeah this the future is so exciting but it's it's also scary the trans, the automation part it, it is scary and it's a conversation i think we need to have like collectively because it, it it opens up great things the conversation that you know humans could do better things creative things but unless until if, if they are not taken care of with maybe things like universal basic income and things like that it might go really you know well, the other side so you said health wealth and, and transportation would you like to kind of talk a little bit more about that because all of these you know they, they are there they are the, the pros of it but there are also cons of it health is you uh, biohazard and, and uh, there is uh, synthetic biology and wealth is uh, yeah algorithmic trading you mentioned you know it could be tilted towards uh, one side transportation i think is super exciting because finally we're going to move from the fossil fuel ICE vehicles to autonomous a- electric evs and then autonomous vehicles would would you like to talk a little bit more about the benefits where a common man will be able to see in this decade
0: much of medical treatment is based on standardized dosage Um, but actually what uh, people are realizing is that's convenient but it might not be appropriate that actually if you can tailor dosages to individuals based on very simple data uh, you'll get much better results so uh, there's some really exciting work going on in cancer treatments for example where you You personalize dosages. And that that's not something that will be limited to the super rich. Uh, I mean, nanobots and so on, that that will remain fringe technology. Uh, But being able to tailor dosages, if you can if you draw a comparison between, say, publishing. So these days, anyone can publish. Anyone can get their views out. And that's one of the one of the great things about the internet. Uh, And so that lowering of the of the entry uh, is possible because of this sort of networked effect. If you can draw on all of the data, the health data of the population, uh, then maybe you can get similar benefits for that population. So that's one example. Uh, Wealth, um, I mean, I suppose wealth, the the reliance on AI, the reliance on technology, the the transaction costs for people who want to send money around the world, that continues to drop down. Uh, And so that's something that benefits most people, being able to transfer their wealth, um, even small amounts uh, is, is beneficial. Uh, and then transportation, I think, I hope, is kind of obvious that the ability to move, but also have goods from around the world uh, come to you at a reasonable cost—that that's a benefit. Uh, but all of this is really focused on the consumer, uh, and so it does does presume a, a basic level of, of of access to resources. Uh, and if people are being simultaneously getting all this benefit of consumption, but they're being unemployed as a result of this, uh, then where do they get the resources to pay for that? which uh, is why there are more serious discussions about universal basic income and things like that or taxing robots
1: what excites you most about artificial intelligence and do you think we will get to our, our agi artificial general general intelligence and if yes who are the people asking the right questions
0: so artificial general intelligence is a bit like um nuclear fusion so when i was a teenager and was very interested in nuclear energy, thinking nuclear fusion is not not fission, but not like nuclear power plants today, but fusion like what happens in the sun. Um, I was really excited that that would solve all of our energy problems. Uh, But uh, I was told 30 years ago that it was about 30 years away. Uh, And now if you ask the people working on it, they say again, it's 30 years away. Uh, And I suspect something similar will happen at least for most of my lifetime with artificial general intelligence. Uh, and so I hope, as we develop machine intelligence, we can improve human intelligence at the
1: same time. I hope we evolve into humans that's more caring, more empathetic towards the society. And I hope that we come together and build the the this the future of the, the technology because I, I think we in the great we are in the greatest technological transition. All of these technologies are converging and. And all of these have the potential to correct the wrongs and create a brighter future. But it also has the potential that if it goes to the wrong hands, it can create a disastrous future. Wish you the very best for the new book. Uh, and, and I hope that we, we can have you here in India and you can have, have the, the book launch over here. Any last notes to our listeners that you would like to leave us with?
0: No, just that I've I've always loved my travels through India from backpacking as a student around in the early 1990s to going to alumni events. We have a lot of alumni in uh, in Mumbai, in Delhi, in Bangalore. Uh, so I hope to go back and uh, and visit soon or you're of course welcome to come visit us in Singapore. But Eddie, a real pleasure talking with you.
1: It, it was a pleasure and honor. Thank you for taking time and being part of the show. And to my listeners, if you like what you see in India, please press the subscribe button. Until next time, see you guys. Bye-bye. Thank you.